Amen. So you guys can have a seat. Um, as Isaiah said, I'm Ben. I'm the campus minister uh, with RUF. And you guys at Tribe Fellowship have been uh, studying the Sermon on the Mount. And this week we're going to look at Mark. We've been going through Mark with RUF. Um, and here's sort of the tie-in. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, this is how people reacted to Jesus. It says this, the very end of the, the whole thing you guys are going to be studying. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like their scribes. So their reaction to his teaching was to be astonished and to say, like, who is this? He's not like anything we've ever heard. And so tonight we're going to look at different reactions to Jesus. Uh, As the text comes up here, there's going to be a phone number at the bottom. One thing we do at RUF is uh, you can text questions during the talk. Um, and uh, Isaiah will give an announcement when I'm done, and I'll come up and take less than five minutes to try to take a stab at your questions. And I reserve the right to say, I don't know. So text whatever you want. So um, I used to live in St. Louis, and a friend of mine, his name was John Perkins, um, he, uh, right after we moved uh, from, from there to here, he started, uh, he currently has his own restaurant called Juniper that's like this cool sexy downtown uh, St. Louis restaurant that is written about in hipster magazines and stuff. Uh, But before that, he started a thing called Entree Underground. And basically what it was is he would send out invitations to a select group of people and invite them to a meal. Uh, And then it would be, he would go and set up, he's a gourmet chef, and he would cook a meal at this secret location. And people from diverse backgrounds and areas that you didn't have to be cool, you didn't have to be rich, you didn't have to be special, but somehow through his little network, you would be invited, and you would sit down and have a meal together and have a conversation. And uh, at one of the first meals where he cooked all these kind of interesting exotic foods, for dessert, he served blue cheese ice cream, which some of you are like, hmm. And others of you are like, that's disgusting. <laughs> and uh, why, what is wrong with him? Because blue cheese is divisive. There's really only two ways to react. Like you either love it or you're revolted. I guess there's three ways. So like you can love it, or you think it's awful, or you just don't even try it. Uh, and Jesus is kind of like blue cheese. Um, and we'll see this in this passage that we're going to look at. Um, and I'll, I'll quote C.S. Lewis, the uh, professor at Oxford from long ago. He says this uh, in one of his books. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. If he did not intend to, he did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. 
There's an objection to this, a logical, if you're a philosophy professor, uh, philosophy major, none of your philosophy professors. Um, the objection is, well, that's a false, you know, you heard the phrase false dilemma. This is a false trilemma, like Lord, liar, lunatic. It's one of the three. He could also be a legend. He could be a myth. C.S. Lewis is presupposing that the gospel accounts are basically accurate in terms of what Jesus actually said and did. Fair enough. I'll deal with that in a little bit. But first, let's see how people reacted to Jesus. First, let's look at the 12, his disciples, his apostles. Look at Mark 3, starting with 13. And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, which means stone, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So as Jesus is calling those to himself, and he's setting apart these twelve, he's setting up this situation where people have to react to him. Uh, Jesus calls twelve. He appoints twelve apostles. So, like, why twelve? Like, why not eleven, or thirteen, or ten thousand? Jesus is communicating something about this kingdom that he's been proclaiming and something about his mission because the number 12 is not a coincidence and it wasn't lost on the original audience. He's replacing the 12 tribes of Israel. He's saying this thing that God began long ago in the Old Testament, these people that were set apart to be a blessing to the whole world, I'm continuing that and starting it anew. It's being reborn in these 12 And he's communicating something about the purpose of what he's doing, but also the character, the morals of what he's doing. It's interesting when you look down that list, it's just a list of names, like to you and me, right? He calls, I'll just pick a few of them, Simon Peter. Peter was a fisherman. Uh, He was impetuous. There's a scene later in the Gospels where the the soldiers come to get Jesus and he cuts someone's ear off. He pulls out his sword and cuts a Roman soldier's ear off and he says I'll never deny you I'm the most faithful one and then he goes 10 minutes later and denies Jesus and then James and John are kind of similar the Boanerges sons of thunder there's a place in Luke 9 where some people reject Jesus and they're like Jesus do you want us to call down fire from heaven on them it's like that escalated quickly like what is happening and they're the worst and then there's another scene where they go and they say they actually sent their mom to go to Jesus and say can James and John sit at your right and left hand when your kingdom comes? They're literally the wars. Fire on you, but, but us. Um, Matthew uh, is a tax collector. So he works for the Roman government, which is, at the current time is oppressing the Jewish people in their own home country. But then there's Simon the Zealot. Zealot is a political term. He's part of a little political party that is working and conspiring through guerrilla warfare to overthrow the Roman government. So you've got this zealot and the tax collector working for the people that the zealot is trying to do guerrilla warfare to overthrow. 
in the same group of 12. And then very ominously, Judas, who betrayed him. It's this crazy thing where Jesus is bringing together people that would never be sitting around the same table for any other reason except that they're following Jesus. That he called them and they said, okay. That they followed him. Um, He's saying, I have a mission of redemption and I'm gathering all kinds of people to myself. When he picks the 12. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a type? Like if I looked at your friends, do they all sort of fit a certain mold? Or does RUF have a type? Or Tribe Fellowship have a type? Jesus didn't have a type. And his original people didn't have a type. This whole obsession we have with diversity, which is beautiful and good and wonderful, sometimes it's diversity just for the sake of diversity. Like it's a good thing to have, so we should. Jesus is the OG of diversity. Like, this was weird. This is different. This is, not a, this is a relatively new idea that's finally sinking in a little bit. And we have a long, long, long way to go. Because if I'm honest, I have a type. And you probably do too. And Jesus is saying, no. It's more. And I'm showing you right here. Zealots. And tax collectors. The worst ear cutters offers. They're mine. Why? What brought them together? It was Jesus' person, certainly him. But it's also his mission. Like sometimes we talk about, do you ever get this question about your ministry? Like, so are you guys more about community or evangelism? Like, what's your thing? Which is it? What? <laughs> right? In the Bible, all throughout, there's like, Community and mission go together because they're all centered around Jesus. And I, I, get, I get what you're saying. Like, I don't, I don't need a mission. I don't need more to do. Like, I'm stressed about school, Ben. Come on, I just need some friends. I just need some people that I like. I just need to feel okay, and I get that, me too. But I would ask you, if you feel separated and isolated, I'll ask you, are you in mission? Are you serving something? Are you moving towards something? Because in the Bible, community happens in mission. Community happens in mission. And mission happens through community. Because people see the love of God on display and they're drawn to it. And they're like, why are these people hanging out with those people? What's happening there? Moving on. So some people, he says, you know, come and they follow and they're following him and they're the 12 and it's great, Right? No opposition, things are good. The problem is some people don't like blue cheese. And uh, Judas is a little foreshadowing of that. Um, every year, the first uh, two days of March Madness, um, because I have a flexible job, I go, to Bl- <laughs> I go to Buffalo Wild Wings, and I love it because I can watch all the games right, and eat my wings. And so here we're going to look at the different screens happening and the different games playing at the same time that are going on here in Mark 3. So let's turn to the other TV. That's, that's the twelve. Let's look at how his family reacts. The 12 reacts by following him, the 12. But now his family. Verse 20. Then he went home, and a crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Jesus' family said he was crazy. Remember C.S. Lewis? 
either a loon, a liar, or the Lord. They go to seize him. And this idea is like, Jesus, okay, we knew that this stuff, and even we saw some angels earlier, but this is, this is getting out of hand. Like, this is, this is not, you're embarrassing us. Stop. Cut it out. This has gone too far. Let me ask you this. Um, if you're a Christian, does your family ever think you're crazy for believing this stuff? Or your friends? Jesus' family thought he was nuts, at least for a time. And maybe you're considering Christianity, but you don't kind of want to get super into it because you're like, I don't want to be one of those fanatics. That will be weird. Is this okay? Or maybe people think you're crazy, but maybe sometimes you're more like Jesus' family. Like you're reading the Bible. This is more often me. I'm a pastor, so it's kind of hard to hide the fact that I'm a Christian. You know, like they think I'm nuts, but they can't help but know. It's kind of a thing. Um, <laughs> but maybe you're more like the family where you're reading through the Bible and you're like, I don't Right? And Jesus, you're embarrassing me. Why are you saying this? This is weird. Can we get like a 2017 paraphrase that's a little bit more culturally appropriate to read together? This is weird. I need my own Jefferson Bible. <laughs> but it, if you think about it, what Jesus is doing here, renewing the 12 tribes of Israel and making these bold claims of forgiving sins and teaching as one who has authority. That is crazy. It's crazy. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Like, what? Like, that makes Donald Trump look like a guy with just some good self-esteem. That's nuts. Unless it's true. Or this, have you wrestled with the implications of the reality of Jesus' potential insanity, if you're a Christian? Have you really read the Gospels and gone, whoa, this is out there. This is intense. Or have you tamed him to fit you and your personality and your ideology or whatever it is? But Mark, I love it. The Gospels don't sugarcoat it. Mark is like, his family thought he was crazy. Which, by the way, sidebar, I said before, in dealing with the idea of legend, if I'm trying to persuade people to join my movement and I'm writing a legend 30 years later, trying to say Jesus is the dude, it doesn't exactly help Jesus' resume for me to say, yeah, his mom and brothers tried to have him committed this one time. That's not persuasive. That's not helpful. But he includes it. Why did he include it? Because it's true. Because it happened. So let's look at the next TV screen at Wild Wings. There's the, the 12 and the family, and now finally the scribes. How do they react to Jesus? Verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. They're saying he's possessed. This is like the exorcist. Like he is demonic. He's evil. He's a liar and an agent of darkness. Um, quick application. Sometimes you do good and you'll be accused of doing evil. You do right and you'll be accused of doing wrong, uh, which is not how you and I are wired. Uh, my wife was an education major at Virginia Commonwealth, Art Ed, 
And she has this book at home called Positive Classroom Management, which was the textbook that all teachers were educated with all over the place. And it's the textbook you were, you were taught according to. Positive classroom management, which means reduce the word no as much as possible, but just affirm people and give them rewards. And if you say yes and affirm and give rewards, you'll get the behavior you want in your students. And it kind of works. But the problem is that when we do good, we expect a gold star. We don't expect to be confronted. We want things to be positive all the time. And Jesus is showing us here that sometimes we do the right thing and we don't get a reward. But we get punished. And Jesus speaks back to them, verse 23. And he called to them. He knew what they were saying and thinking. He called to them and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but it's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Jesus is saying here, look, a house divided can't stand. Abraham Lincoln famously quoted this. A little out of context, but we'll forgive him for that. And he's saying, not only do I not do the work of the devil, I broke into his house, I kicked his A, and I've tied him up in the corner, and now I'm taking over his kingdom. That's how you see what you're seeing. I took him down. Forget, give me a break. I'm possessed of the devil because I'm healing people. What do you think? I'm taking over this kingdom. Quick sidebar, this is weird verse, verse 29. Um, Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So, or 28, truly I say, all the sins will be forgiven of the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. And then it's verse 30. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. That's weird, right? It's here, so i got to deal with it, okay? It's not the main point, but um, what does this mean? Uh, One theologian, N.T. Wright, says this on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, The Pharisees have called the work of the Spirit the work of the devil. This is like a conspiracy theory where you think that's exactly what they'd want you to believe. If you're working for the devil, you'd start casting out demons, and then that would make us trust you. Once you believe a doctor to be a sadistic madman, you'll never allow him to treat you. And then there's no going back. That's how he takes it. Maybe. Um, but sometimes I, I, I talk to people and they, they read this verse and they're like, have I committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Like, am I in trouble? Uh, theologian Sinclair Ferguson says, if, you've, if you're afraid that maybe you've committed that sin, you probably haven't. Everything we see in the scripture, there's a, there's a serious hardening of heart against Jesus. That says, like, nope, I've rejected Jesus, I've rejected the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, it should serve as a warning if you're feeling like, eh, just run to Jesus. Just go closer to him. Uh, It should drive us back. It's a real warning that if you've come close and rejected it, that's a problem. But if you're afraid of it, don't sit around worrying about whether or not you've committed this sin, but just go to Jesus. But then he says this. This is amazing. Mark's gospel impresses on us that the greatest of sins, this one being number one, that the greatest of sins are usually committed by those who are the most religious. 
The greatest of sins are usually committed by those who are the most religious. He underlines the basic lesson that it is not religious observance, but Jesus who saves. It's not religious observance, but Jesus who saves. These are the most religious people in the world. And so there's this incredible warning for us, but there's also this incredible irony where they are saying, you're the devil, while at the same moment they might be committing the worst sin possible by giving him that accusation. Okay, so what does it look like to follow Jesus? Let's look back at the family. The family game's getting interesting. They said it was crazy earlier. Let's go back to that game because the score's close. Here at the end of the game, finally the family again. Mark uh, 3.31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him, and they called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So again, the family's there, mom and the brothers, and they're trying to get to Jesus. It seems like they're trying to get him away from the crowd again, still trying to shut him up, saying, send him a message. It's your family. Enough is enough. Quit being weird and come home. And then Jesus says this amazing thing. 33. Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. A little insulting to Mary, okay? A little weird. Not what we would expect given church history and art. It's an amazing statement. Who's my mother? Who's my brother? These people. They are. This amazing statement that his kingdom, this community and mission that he's creating, isn't just like, we're not soldiers, first and foremost. We're not partners. He calls them family. My brothers and sisters. These are my people. These are my ones who follow me and do the will of the Father. I listen to this podcast called The Moth, and The Moth is just people standing in a microphone telling their stories, and it's recorded, and it's put out, and it's awesome. A few years ago, there was one, uh, there was a woman named Daisy Rosario, and she told the story about how she was estranged from her father, and the way she described her father, uh, he was a bad guy, he was in and out of jail all the time, they lived in New York City, um, and this is what she said. She said, the way I describe my dad is I tell people, He's what rappers want you to believe that they are, but he actually is. Um, And she had an older brother, a half-brother, who was two years older than her. But he lived in California, and her father had abandoned him, much like he had abandoned her. And her father died when she was 28, and it was time for the funeral. And she wasn't sure she was going to go, but then this older brother that she never met was going to be at the funeral... She'd never met him, so she's like, okay, I'll go. And she met him at the visitation. She says she saw him across the room, and she walked over to him because they kind of looked alike. And so she knew right away who he was because he was the one stranger who happened to look like her in the room, and it was awkward, and the whole family was watching. Um, and the reality was the whole side of her, her dad's whole side of the family hadn't really bothered with either one of them their whole life. And so there they are as adults. 
adults, both raised by their moms. And she sat down next to him, and they had an awkward hello. And then he said, um, he's from California, and they're in New York. And he said, I'm here till Monday, and I'd like to see you every day while I'm here, if you can. Um, oh, and I have a son. He's 12. His name is Darian. So you have a nephew, I guess. So this is all news to her in this moment at her own father's funeral. The next day, that was the visitation. The next day at the actual funeral, people were taking turns. And so she went up and she said a few words like, yeah, I wasn't that close to him, but I'm sad. And then her brother gets up, who had only met her dad once when he was seven years old on a prison visit. And he said this, I'm sorry, I don't want to offend anybody, but I actually don't really care that he's dead. I didn't know him. I never knew him. And I wasn't even going to come here today. But then they told me, you know, your sister wants to meet you. And then he just started bawling. And she said he was the kind of guy that doesn't cry. And you could tell this because he was like jamming his palms into his eyes, like shoving the tears back into his face. He started bawling. And then he looked at her and he said, and now I've met her. And she's beautiful. And he sat down. And she said, I, I knew that he wanted to have dinner and get together, but I didn't know that I was the reason he got on the plane. So they hung out a little bit, went to the zoo. He flew home. And then a few months later, it's her birthday, her 29th birthday. And she gets a package in the mail with a gift from her brother. And 28 birthday cards. One for every year that they've been apart. And Jesus is saying that to us here. He's saying, you weren't my family, but now you are. This is my sister. This is my brother. This is my mother. I have a sister and she's beautiful. You are my brother and I love you. 28 birthday cards as if I'd always known you from the very beginning. So I, I tell you this story to say, like, we began with C.S. Lewis and the three choices we have. But Jesus is not just a logical conclusion to an argument. Where you, go, you know, now that I've examined the evidence, it appears as though he is Lord and King. <laughs> He's calling you into his family. He's calling you brother and sister. So what is your reaction to him? And do you want this kind of brother? Do you want a 28 birthday card, brother? And Mark is saying, this is your brother. He's not crazy, and he's not lying, but he's yours. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time together. I thank you for Tribe Fellowship and RUF coming together. We pray that we would be people who know and love you and shine your light into this campus. And I, I pray that you would be with us and transform us and change us so that we would look like your little brothers and your little sisters. And pray this in your name. Amen.